I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Dueling Pinocchios. This project began life as a simple acknowledgement that there were two major Pinocchio movies releasing in 2022. For a while during pre-production, I was under the impression that Guillermo del Toro was in fact making the Disney one. Then I heard he was making them another Haunted Mansion movie that being by far his favourite ride of theirs. I was excited about both of those projects. As it turns out, GDT isn't who the House of Mouse went with. For Pinocchio, it wound up being Robert Zemeckis, another one of our favourite directors. He helmed The Walk, which we discussed uh, up against Man on Wire a while back, and A Christmas Carol, which we compared with Muppet's Christmas Carol in the early days of this show. So it feels like this is a recurring thing for us. You get Zemeckis on, we have to be comparing him to somebody else. Well, I mean, like, like he's doing adaptations of, of things that already exist and are really good. So I suppose like he has to sing for his supper and we're the ones who've got the sheet music. So Back to the Future 2, It's a Wonderful Life. Oh yeah, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> well, be, uh, however, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Cool World. I didn't say they don't favour. <laughs> I'm just saying that the comparisons are there. We are gonna do Cool World at some point, but <laughs> you folks will not be happy. Well, no, hang on. You will be happy. You'll not be happy to know that this thing exists and how it exists. Anyway, we'll do Cool World at some point. Also, Contact, that we covered a few weeks ago. Absolute classic from 1997 about meeting aliens, which I guess we'll put it up against the Starship Troopers? Zemeckis' version of Pinocchio was originally in the hands of Sam Mendes of Road to Perdition and Skyfall, an American beauty which has aged badly, by the way, and then Paul King of the Paddingtons, which are both fantastic. It was written, however, this version by Chris White, who wrote Ants, Nutty Professor to the Clumps, and The Golden Compass, flattening out all of the rich themes in Pullman's novel to leave the world with uh, the first part of a trilogy that was about nothing and never got any follow-ups to make it a trilogy. Chris White also wrote Rogue One, a Star Wars film that isn't really much about anything either, but proved to be a massive crowd-pleaser. But he also wrote the Disney remake of Cinderella, which is actually one of the only good films of this type that they have made over the years, along with uh, Maleficent and a handful of others. Like, when I say handful, I mean like probably one. The live-action Pinocchio by Disney was utterly reviled upon release in mid-2022, and a cursory search online will uncover a torrent of scorn. Meanwhile, Del Toro was hard at work on the stop-motion animated version for Netflix, and surprising nobody, it is magnificent. A cursory search online will uncover a torrent of praise. And since this is going to be explorative, especially of Del Toro's version, we brought back our partner from the GDT Director Series, Victoria Luna B. Grieve. Hello again, Victoria. Hi, it's been a hot minute since I've been here, so it thanks has. for having me back. <laughs> we have leapfrogged directly over Nightmare Alley just to get here. We'll, we'll be back in the GDT Directors series again, I'm fairly certain and looking forward to it. Nightmare Alley gets better every time you watch it. 
I, I still got to see it. Oh, man, you've seen it? So, yeah. So so I'm, I'm kind of saving it for whenever you, you send up the, the, the signal to, to get me on the podcast for it <laughs> in a way. Okay. Okay. I mean, so just an impromptu, oh, hey, we're going to do this. Have you seen it yet? I will now. It'll I be that. I sure will. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you mentioned Cool World. If you need a guest for that, I've inexplicably <laughs> seen that movie. So. <laughs> I can't explain it. I was there. So was the movie. <laughs> But as all we, the movies I've seen, it certainly was one of them. I don't know. Did you trip, fall, and into Cool World? Did you stumble? Well, Brad yeah. Pitt well, did. it was more yeah. like the Ludovico technique. I just kind of woke up one day, and there it was. But... Oh, okay. At this point, Cool World has been spoken about not only more than Pinocchio in this podcast, but more than Cool World's ever been spoken about anywhere. <laughs> So as we were gearing up to watch this this pairing of Pinocchs, uh, I did what I always do, and I started to delve into the deeper well. I was searching for other significant examples and retellings of the Pinocchio book that's so beloved by Italy. It was uh, written in 1883 by Carlo Collodi. Uh, the following list is by no means all of them, but to my understanding, the most noteworthy examples. Before I do the list... I did something similar with this for Sherlock Holmes, and we have a Sherlock show coming up soon. Maybe even multiple shows. Uh, we also did kind of like did something like this for uh, Christmas Carol, and sort of exa- examined a whole bunch of them. Though that was more around the time of writing the Christmas Thieves. But all three stories seem to have this kind of recurring, like you know, we we can come at this from this angle as will be apparent from this list of Pinocchs first off there's Giulio Antemoro's The Adventures of Pinocchio from 1911 this was a silent film and it was one of those ones that was thought lost until a recently restored 30 minute fragment and you can actually see bits of this on YouTube But uh, Sherlock Holmes, again, had a silent version of it that was thought lost for many, many years, and it turned out it was stored with a whole bunch of other films simply labelled Sherlock Holmes. Ben Sharpstein and Hamilton Lusky's Disney's Pinocchio from 1940, and I bet most of you didn't know who actually directed it, and if pressed, most of you, much like me, would have gone, I don't know, Walt Disney? And we discussed that with Daniel Floyd as part of our Disney series many years back. Then there was The Adventures of Buritano from 1959, which is a Disney-baiting animated adaptation of Alexei Tolstoy's book, itself an adaptation of Collodi's book. Then there's Ray <clears throat> Ray Goosen's Pinocchio in Outer Space from 1965. Then there's <sighs> Corey Allen's The Erotic Adventures of Pinocchio from 1971. Sharon joked on hearing just the title of this that it's not just his nose that grows, but as it turns out, that's the actual tagline of the movie. And before we all call the police, this Pinocchio with the magic tackle is played by an adult man, and not for the last time. Then there's Steve Barron's The Adventures of Pinocchio from 1996, and we are going to be talking about that. That's the one with uh, Martin Landau and Jonathan Taylor Thomas. We're talking about that in just a bit, because it's one that a lot of people did see. 
Then there's Pinocchio's Revenge, also from 1996, which is a shameless ripoff of Child's Play that has literally nothing to do with Pinocchio. It's got that joke in uh, uh, Shrek about, oh, okay, fine, uh, one gold sovereign for the possessed toy. Someone just went, yeah, let's just do that. And it's a possessed Pinocchio that's trying to get, in a modern age, California, who's trying to get a little girl to kill her mum with a, a butcher knife or something. Yep, didn't watch that one. Then there's Shrek from 2001, the first of a series that used Pinocchio as a tool to flip the bird to Disney. Although you know what's also going through my head, don't you? What? Now you be a good Pinocchio and, and don't, don't you lie. lie. <laughs> <sighs> Roberto Benigni's Pinocchio from 2002 is a hideously ill-judged starring vehicle for the multiple award-winning Roberto Benigni. Miramax scored big with his Italian anti-Nazi film Life is Beautiful in 1997 and the Oscar ceremony in 98, sweeping the Academy and getting Chicago Film Association Awards, Screen Actors Guilds, BAFTAs and the Palme d'Or. And they hoped that they won to another winner here, but his creepy antics only generated Razzie Awards. And we'll talk about that for a bit. We actually didn't make it through the film. I managed to track down a very rare copy of this in Italian with subtitles and about halfway through, I was like, there are so many other Pinocchio films that sound more interesting than this, and we should be watching them instead. And I was right to do so. Then there's Enzo de Allo's Pinocchio from 2012, one of the ones that we managed to watch because we weren't watching the Benini one, which is a beautiful 2D hand-drawn animated film that nobody has ever heard of. And we found it on YouTube today in its HD entirety, so we will be talking about that one too. Then there's Matteo Garone's Pinocchio from 2019, a truly excellent live-action film that we saw today, and we'll definitely be talking about at length. It might be confused with the Benini one, because Benini, who played Pinocchio in that in his film, plays Geppetto in this, and he's really low-key. It's completely different in its approach. And then finally, there's Vasily Rovensky's Pinocchio, a true story from 2021, the Russian CG one with Napoleon Dynamite playing a horse and Paulie Shaw playing Pinocchio. We will be talking about that one and the Jonathan Taylor Thomas one in the next show in conjunction with the Guillermo del Toro one. However, before we do any of that, here is Sharon and I talking to Daniel Floyd about the 1940 original Disney classic, just to give us a baseline of what most people know. And this was recorded way back, nearly 10 years ago in 2014, as we were beginning our lengthy, and still not actually finished, because it never will be, saga of discussions on the official animated Walt Disney canon. Because I don't want to outlive those movies, do you? You want to look back and go, remember when Disney made movies? Now they just make playing cards, pornographic ones, but they keep us going in the atomic wastelands. Ladies! And gentlemen, the master showman, that's me, and by special permission of the management, is presenting to you the one and only Pinocchio. I got no strings, no major. When Walt Disney gave you his first full-length feature, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs became a nation's friends. You made Dopey the star of his day, and hi-ho your favorite song. And now Walt Disney brings you his first and only full-length feature, 
since Snow White. Which one of this grand new group of characters will be your favorite? Will it be mischievous little Pinocchio himself? Will it be Geppetto, the kindly old woodcarver? Will it be fluttery, frivolous Cleo, the goldfish? Or will it be roly-poly Figaro? Might be those wily crooks, Jay Worthington Fowlfellow, and Raggle Taggle Gideon. Or perhaps Stromboli, the gypsy-like puppet master. Will it be the villainous coachman? Will it be Lampwick, a tough little boy your folks never wanted you to play with? Or will it be Monstro the Whale, the biggest, noisiest character ever to come to the screen? Or will it be Jiminy Cricket, the only conscience with a sense of humor? Woo-hoo! And always let your conscience be your guide. Pinocchio, 1940. Uh, Dan, what do you like about Pinocchio? Actually, having now watched it again and knowing its historical, like at the context it was released in, I like like a lot about Pinocchio. Pinocchio okay, is quickly turned into one of my actual. I don't know if I'd rank it among favorites. I feel like I want to finish watching the rest of these first, but it's I like it way way more than I used to, because in watching Pinocchio, I realized for the first time what an incredible leap Disney had made in terms of technical and artistic capability from Snow White even. These guys were, there was no hard set study for animation up to this point. These guys were basically figuring it out as they went, how to do animation well and how, and just figuring this craft out. The fact that in 10 years, they basically figured out everything that I have now studied to do my job today by themselves is astounding, but also that just between these two films, a few years apart, the huge strides forward, like oh, yeah. in character animation, the, in effects animation, the way they stage the action doesn't feel like a short anymore. It feels like now they're imitating film. The a lot of the kind of camera angle, simu- like a simulation they do, like the entire monstro sequence, the way it's cut together, it feels very film-like and very effective. This, it's a charming story. It's got really charming music, and. The production value on this film, like you really, f- I feel like you really feel Disney's perfectionism watching this one. It feels like they made an absurd amount of money on Snow White. Like if you if you don't adjust for inflation, it's still the most successful animated film like box office ever. It allowed like, them to buy their Burbank Studios. That that yeah, basically it, paved the way for Disney itself. Yeah, it it made Disney animation a thing. He staffed up big time. He did, and he put a lot of money into. Pinocchio as a follow-up and you could tell he was like all right we're gonna make a lot of money from these things let us make this perfect let us just pour as much money as we need to to make this film awesome and And it's a lot trickier as well because the original uh, Snow White's uh, fairy tale they could boil it down to the simple lines which it was Um, but Pinocchio is a book and it's got a very set story and one thing leads to another and each it's episodic and everything has some sort of uh, relevance to Pinocchio's journey so they were, to a degree, far more constricted by their adaptation of that than they were with Snow White. Definitely. And I think it helped because I mean, Pinocchio feels a lot leaner and a lot more story focused than Snow White does as well. Like Less it's, uh, procrastinating with dance and singing routines. There's still yeah. a few with the clocks and the, and the jumping out, a little wooden boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But it does move along at much more of a quick clip. And it's uh, just... Disney just sunk so much money into this thing, and it's really 
watching it now, it is really like a joy to watch. Like, find, like I went back and I watched like, okay, Snow White, the dwarves chasing the witch up the mountain before she dies. And to kind murder of her at, with pickaxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For kids. Um, <laughs> so like watching that and looking at just technically what they achieved is, all right, some very cool shots, some very fancy lighting, very beautiful painting, some pretty good animation here. And But then looking at that compared to the monstro sequence in Pinocchio, and it looks like this was 10 to 20 years apart. Like the leap forward in yeah. craft and in the way it's staged and everything is just, and in how exciting and really tense it is, is just astounds me now. Little wooden head, go play your park. Bring a little joy to every heart. Little do you know, and yet it's true that I'm mighty proud of you. Little wooden feet, and best of all, little wooden seat, in case you fall. Oh, how graceful, my little wooden head. Structurally and in, in just sheer appearance, Pinocchio far better resembles the later Disney's than Snow White does. Right. I just I never realized until watching these now how much progress they made so quickly. They set the tone with it. Um, my personal favorite bits I like as well. Honest John, the uh, Fox <laughs> character, he's basically Mr. Burns. If you actually watch his, uh, his, his behavior, especially since Mr. Burns uh, appears to have a cultural reference point around about 1940, maybe slightly before then. So it's like he stopped there and has basically been an uh, honest John, uh, but, you know, but immortal and somehow before carried. Before he got huge, his, his yeah. early wheeling, dealing, scamming days. Um, and he's perfectly characterized in a single little feature of his costume. And can you guess which one I'm thinking of here? Is it the, like, the hole in the glove? Yes! The fingertip hole. He's got a little tiny patch of his glove missing, which shows that he's got these airs and graces and these fancy white gloves, but there's a hole in it. And it's it's kind of like you can see the shyster underneath, uh, and it it doesn't take much exploration to see it. But to the casual, wide-eyed Pinocchio-type guy, he might seem like a fancy actor. But he hasn't what... even noticed that he's yeah. got a hole in his glove. No, of course. Because yeah, <laughs> he's not looking for those little details. An actor's life for me. An actor's life for me. A wax moustache and a beaver coat. A pony cart and a billy goat. An actor's life is fun. You wear your hair on the pompadour. You ride around in a coach and four. You stop and buy out a candy store. An actor's life for me. I did the D. An actor's life for me. A high silk hat and a silver cane. A watch of gold with a diamond chain. I did the day. An actor's life is gay. It's great to be a celebrity. An actor's life for me. I wonder what led to the decision to make Honest John and I forget the name of his Gideon. counterpart. Gideon. Gideon, right. The decision to make them anthropomorphic animals in a otherwise human world in which nobody no- seems to notice or care. Yeah, it's like you're turning into a donkey. Not that much of a problem, actually. There's a cat that wears clothes. <laughs> it's, that's actually a <laughs> And the cat can't even talk. <laughs> As I was watching it, 
half of my brain was kind of reading them as allegories anyway. So, like, everybody else in this world doesn't see them as a fox and a cat. We see them as a fox and a cat because that's their personality traits coming through. Yeah. And the when the boys all turn into donkeys on Pleasure Island, they're not really turning into donkeys. They are simply being boxed up and shipped off as slaves. But we're seeing them being turned into donkeys because that characterizes what's happening to them. Honest that John gives a priceless puppet to uh, Stromboli uh, and gets a small bag of gold in return. That's like, that's how much of a wheeler dealer he really is. Stromboli <laughs> should have gone, bloody hell, I'm talking a fox! And grabbed him as well. <laughs> that is a fine point. Actually, the, I would say that what appealed what to me the most... What about your cat? Oh no, he only wears the pants. <laughs> yeah, he can't talk. Um, what, what appealed to me the most about Pinocchio, particularly in comparison to Snow White, was the fact that there is a journey here, that there is oh, a yeah. character who goes from A to B to C and that it it's actually... Um, there aren't that many Disney stories that follow this particular arc, which is that Pinocchio is essentially naive and lazy and selfish, not in a, a really horrible way, just in the way that children are, um, because when you're tiny, the world doesn't really exist outside your own focus. Yeah. Um, and it's it's presented to him that if he wants to become a real boy, read grown-up human being, he's going to have to learn to be unselfish and to care about other people than himself and, and uh, other things than his own gratification. And he does go through that journey. Yeah. Snow White doesn't even approach that. She gets she doesn't get told to do anything and she doesn't do anything. She technically she mothers the dwarves and gives them a bit more of a, uh, a, a lifestyle, an organized lifestyle than they've managed before. She makes them wash their hands and she gives goose, uh, gooseberry pie to Grumpy. Save it for the princess show. I know. I know. <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't talk about character arcs without pointing out that she's a princess. But um, I will say the transformation scene uh, when Lampwick turns into a donkey is fantastic, even today. It's like the American Werewolf in London transformation scene for kids. Well, yeah, yeah. Really oh scary. god yes it is he's he, yeah because he's so terrified in that yeah. scene he's totally compass mentis throughout the whole thing he can see his humanity dribbling away and turns into he, he can't talk at the end as well he, so he's just basically a braying simpleton but it's it's ugh. Yeah, just just watching that, it's it's extremely masterfully handled, and uh, I think uh, one of the uh, animators talking about it to compare it to Hitchcock in terms of uh, the the attention, because as Lampwick's transforming bit by bit into a donkey, he's unaware of it. Ears first, then tail. It's Pinocchio's reactions to him, and it's like, uh oh, uh oh, something's going on here. And then he like looks at the uh, the drink, throws the drink away, looks at the cigarette. Kids smoking and drinking and doing Fight Club, I might add as well. <laughs> um, uh, but but yeah, that that whole scenario is is pretty terrifying. And the worst thing, and I said this to Lyra, no comeuppance for those guys. Pinocchio nope. does not foil that. You would not make a movie like that today where Pinocchio wasn't morally obliged to stop the trafficking of children. That is quite a loose end to leave. They totally <laughs> get away with it. Isn't yeah. that, that guy like no one comes back. As boys, <laughs> and Lawrence John's like, yes, happy to do business with you. Um, so the other thing I love about it is uh, Monstro the whale. The uh, that, that whole sequence, it's the the, monster, the the immensity of that thing, and the uh, the fact that they have to animate the water, which I gather is quite difficult to animate. 
Yeah, yeah. That, that's part of what makes my jaw drop looking at that. Just given the scale, yeah. Given the scale and how much they do and how complex a lot of the water and the splashes are and the movements of the water and the waves and the characters moving and acting on top of that and being affected by it. That's, that's super complex stuff. Yeah. Even now, that's super complex to do. And it, it's the second animated feature ever in their, sec- in their first time trying anything like that. And it's probably some of the best-looking water Disney's ever done, honestly. I'm amazed this did not do huge, huge money. Why didn't it? I mean, 40 uh, means it was, it was in the middle of the Depression. It was that, so that didn't help. There was also because Europe had bigger Hitlery problems to deal with. Hitlery uh, problems, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> we ain't got time for Pinocchio, chaps. We've got Hitlers to deal with. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's a, I mean, Europe was, even then, a good chunk of the, of the audience that Disney yeah. would have to... Distribution was, became strangled between, between these years, definitely. So you basically could not count on that audience anymore. Mm. And... And honestly, he sank so much more money into this film. It was going to have to make a big amount of money back to, yeah. uh, to, to make it back. And so it ended up being pretty unsuccessful at the time. Obviously, long term, very successful, as with all of these early Disney films. But um, yeah, it, at the time, definitely a big hit financially to the studio. Yeah. When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. Not just a little squeeze, pucker up and blow. And if your whistle's weak, yell, Jiminy Cricket, right. Take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. And always let your conscience be your guide. Um, Sharon, uh, because you can probably sum up m- many of my issues, do you want to say if, any problems you have with Pinocchio? Um, well, I think the, the, the biggest one for me, um, and it, it took me by surprise, actually. I wasn't expecting this, but there is a, shall we say, a degree of elitism in uh, the whole segment with the, uh, the boys being taken off to Pleasure Island. You've got this um, mass of... Uh, if you look at it closely, very obviously poverty-struck kids. I mean, all of their shoes and their clothes are tatty as hell and full of holes. They clearly do not have particularly um, uh, well-cared-for uh, backgrounds or, or, you know, households that, that have um, money and the ability to support them. And yet... I think I spotted Tony Costa in there somewhere. Yeah, quite Philip possibly. Pullman was making notes. There's there's almost an Oliver sensibility about it all. Yeah, Oliver twist yeah. going on there. But there's still this overarching tone of they deserve what they get because they're being seduced by the prospect of drink and smoke and pool. And, um, you know... <laughs> being able to play all the time and not ever having to take any responsibility. Well, you see, if you'd gone to school like good boys, then you'd be all right, wouldn't you? And it's like, have you seen what's happening to them? He is in a box labelled salt mines. Nobody deserves that. This is, of course, not helped by the fact that Jiminy keeps lecturing Pinocchio the whole way through and sounding like the sort of guy that you really don't want to follow, follow that moral path because it sounds boring. But not not just boring, impractical, unrealistic. Um, yeah, they they do kind of hit the Protestant work ethic a little bit 
You also had a few issues with race, racial depiction. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll let if you, you could summarise quickly, we're running tight for time on Pinhead. Sure, sorry. Right, I'll let you talk about racist duck, but um, for me, <laughs> it was... Uh, it was the uh, the characterization of Stromboli, who managed to insult Italians, uh, Romani people, fairground owners, um, and people of a heavier set disposition, all in one go. Nice. Which I thought was quite impressive. That's a quadruple whammy. It is. Yeah, he, he reminds me a little bit of Watto. Yeah. Yeah, Pinocchio, yeah, so you come here. Yeah, the Jewish insults in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. It's a bit Fagin-ish. Yes. There's a lot of issues um, around this time and uh, there are a couple of uh, censored Disney films which we're going to be talking about uh, where you could put it down to uh, them being racially ignorant, racially not, – not racially intolerant so much as just not – uh, Yeah, not having any clue that in a few years' time, maybe even immediately there, people will be watching this stuff and slapping their heads and going, seriously, you put that up there? And then in decades from now, you'll be going, you cannot put this stuff in kids' movies. Racist Duck is actually only there for a a brief half second. And uh, people tend to make a big fuss about the crows in Dumbo. We'll be talking about them in a second. Racist Duck is a puppet in Stromboli's shop. It's it's just part of the background. It's not even animated. But it's a a tribeswoman. She's got, like, um, grass skirt and, like, sort of uh, bobbles on her feet and big... A big red bill resembling oversized lips, and it's kind of like yeah, yeah. I didn't even see that in the background. Keep an eye out for racist dogs. There we go. (laughs) But once you've seen it, you cannot unsee it. It's not actually a problem inherent to Pinocchio so much as a problem inherent to the time. Yeah, but unfortunately, a lot of that in early Disney. Also, Geppetto's a quitter. He gives up way too easily on everything. It's not really uh, the pro- a problem with the uh, the film. Uh, it just shows that Pinocchio has to push that little bit harder and a little bit further. And I suppose it is good characterization for the, the kid. Um, also, they had Mel Blanc, the voice of Bugs Bunny, in the studio, voicing the cat Gideon. And at the last minute, they decided, let's make him mute. I would the only like- time they ever got him in the studio, yeah. <laughs> and they didn't use it. What the hell? I mean, that's, again, not really a problem. He could have sucked, but we'll never know now, will we? Nope. Well, the hiccup's still in there. Yeah, he, he does get a hiccup. I think that was Mel Blanc's hiccup. Yep. <laughs> it would be nice if he actually talked only in a Bugs Bunny voice. Um, Do we have time for me to quickly ask Dan the particle animation question? Yeah, go for it, yeah. Talking about the animation of water, Dan, yeah. um, we were discussing this while we were watching Fantasia today. Is the reason that animating things like fire and fog and dust and water are so complex that it's it's basically about animating thousands and thousands and thousands of molecules that all have to be doing their own thing? Yeah, essentially. And especially, I mean, doing it in hands-drawn animation when you're just having to kind of approximate it and make it look right and real a very complex thing to do and actually make look right even today still even though we can run a lot of simulations uh just physics wise to kind of get us a lot of the way there for things like water it's still a really complex uh task to perform we've gotten to the point now where in film like oceans and water and all that stuff can be in there and you won't even think about it it just looks right like the uh, helicarrier coming out of the water like just all that looks right 
but that is so much an incredible amount of work to get looking proper and correct. And it's, yeah. it's, I, I saw some, some guys uh, at one point back at Pixar, some of the guys who worked on life of Pi came in and just kind of showed some of their tech demo for what they did to be able to get realistic oceans that you could still directly control, like when a wave hit from where and what controlled basically the image at any given time, the composition while still making it look like realistically what an ocean would do with water is just staggeringly complex what they had to figure out. And so the fact that they can make like the ocean movements and waves and all that look this good in the thirties, the 1940 by hand, it is mind blowing. back at my notes for these earlier films we were doing I, I wrote maybe like eight or nine bullet points for all these earlier ones compared to the pages yes <laughs> partly just because of the our, our, we eventually gave up the structure of all right let's not record 10 of these at once let's do let's do them one or two at a time so i started actually going much more in depth and coming up with stuff to say but man yeah or like seven things about all of fantasia that's ridiculous it seems like a big ask, and it almost like if we were going to go back, we should really just do them one per week. But uh, Christ, I, I don't think I could talk about Fantasia for t- for the customary hour and a half to two hours. I think the half hour we even ended up getting before recording this extra bit, it mm. feels like the right amount because there, just with these earlier films, there is plenty to say, but there's not so much substance to the film that you could be digging in for yeah. hours and hours on it. Like we are not going to run to three hours even when you're saying you're just going to do two on Dumbo. There's lots of lovely things to say about Dumbo, but you don't have to talk for two hours about it. Whereas I think we talk at length on those later ones because we really want to. Yeah. One exception to that would actually be Pinocchio. I feel like we, I could feasibly write an essay about the, uh, the simple mechanics of a puppet wanting to be a real live boy and why that, genuinely appeals to us and has made it uh, an immortal story. That's true. We could probably dig into some of these a bit more. Cinderella could probably get a little bit more, mm. some of these uh, handful of these other ones. But by the po- by the time we were getting to these later 60s films, we were talking longer about them. Oh no, actually, I was I was putting this is a bit for the end of Pinocchio. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> sorry. See how I worked into it though, very, very seamlessly. Genuine question, by the way, does that mean that Pinocchio counts as the first sci-fi story? He's like a wooden cyborg. (laughs) (laughs) Surely sci-fi existed before the 40s. No, he's a golem. No, no, I don't don't mean Pinocchio the film, because Pinocchio Pinocchio the the story has been around for a lot longer than that. No, but the the concept of uh, um, uh, a a creature of being made and then having a spark of life put in it has been around for a long time before that. Mm. That's true. Yeah. The... the, the, but then again, the golem is not a character that is possessed of that much of a. a, 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 a not that I've, in the mythology I've read, it doesn't yearn to be human. 
It doesn't have a soul that's animated by God. Yeah. I mean, in all seriousness, Pinocchio is a real life boy. This is what really bothered me when I was uh, I was a kid. It's like he is real. He's just made of wood. Yeah. The only difference between him is is his uh, physical form, his metabolism, and there's so many drawbacks to actually being human that being a, a wooden puppet can you know. There's many many scenarios where if Pinocchio was human, he'd die. When he's searching for Geppetto, he'd just drown. Yeah, you could swim forever. Why do you want to be real? Yeah. And also, how do we define real at this point? If Pinocchio's talking, Pinocchio's thinking, Pinocchio's wishing to be real, is not Pinocchio real and alive? I think And a boy. What he wants is to be meat. Yeah, no, but he is... I guess that even in the film... He is, in a practical sense, he is as real at the beginning as he is later when he is made into, like, a real meat flesh boy. and blood Super boy. Super like, boy, if you will. Flesh. <laughs> his, his, I mean, his interaction and the loving relationship he shares with Geppetto yeah. and his interaction with everyone else in the household, he may look like a lot more of the objects around the room, mm. but he functionally, like, the re- in the relationships, he is the same. But... I mean, basically, it's the, 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 the meat versus wood is incidental. Uh, in He's grown. He's had an arc. This yes. is why he beats Snow White hands down every time. He's actually changed as a person and become less of a selfish little goit. Snow White doesn't really change. In fact, we don't even really have any evidence that she's going to turn down the next poisoned apple that comes her way. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with Snow White, really. I mean, even her naivety is seen as charming. Of course, there's plenty wrong with Snow White by today's standards, but in taken at face value, Snow White doesn't need to change. Pinocchio is basically presented with, like, you're presented with a, a norm, which is horrible little child. Isn't he cute, but aren't kids selfish little buggers? And then basically, slowly, he has to go through attrition. And um, in the longer stories of Pinocchio, he goes through even more. In, in the, uh, I actually remember watching an animated series of Pinocchio when I was a, a kid, where he actually gets crucified. Now, we can argue the relative merits of what it means to string a wooden puppet out on a crucifix in the sun in the desert for hours on end, all we want, but ultimately it's the journey of the soul that Pinocchio's on. Um, Pinocchio, motherfuckers, we're out. (laughs) (laughs) See, I can't not end on that now. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Um, Okay, right. Anything else about Pinocchio? Jiminy Cricket. We've not really mentioned that he actually, for a long time with Disney, was like a mascot for them. I mean, basically, I think until... Tinkerbell came along. He was Disney's go-to guy when it wasn't going to be Mickey. If they were going to like Jiminy Cricket was, am I am I imagining this? Oh no, he definitely he reappeared pretty frequently. He was in one of those uh, awful. He was in one of those awful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the wartime ones. I'm sorry. Yes, he was in one of the wartime ones. I, it's either which one is it? I have it written down. It's Footloose and Fancy Free. Uh, fun and Fancy Free. <laughs> Yeah, he was in a fun and fancy free later. It's just because he was that sort of a Disney mascotish character, and he is yeah. a really lovable, appealing character too. He could have been super annoying, and in probably some incarnations in certain films and bits, mm. he has been super annoying. I'm sure, yeah. but because that kind of character handled poorly, gets super annoying really fast. But yeah. there's a lot of appeal to the way he moves around and kind of a a little bit of a vaudevillian showmanship to his 
performance and the way he swings that umbrella around like a cane with, with the hat and he he's pretty lovable i can see why he stuck around yeah also the the two-man uh dynamic of him with uh pinocchio and like him being the shoulder angel and pinocchio being this out of out of control little id the shoulder devil himself just ch- charging around doing whatever the hell he wants and kind of like saying oh i'm gonna listen to you jiminy and totally not again it's so much more dynamic than snow white Wandering around going, Oh, a shadow, it might attack me! The historical significance of Pinocchio, I think we've already we covered a bit it to begin with, um, and, but let's go back to that. It gave them tenure as a studio because it, it proved that they could do it twice. Um, it introduced the magic. Now, magic's in Snow White, but if you remember, most of it seems to involve the Wicked Queen trying to kill Snow White. So it's, it's less about wonderful things happening and more about relief that the magic has actually ended when uh, she's woken up by True Love's kiss. The, the fairy dust and the blue fairy and the touching Pinocchio with the wand and that sort of starburst effect and the, the when you wish upon a star, that stuff. And the fairy stuff, and the wishing upon a star, and the what we want to be, and you know how we want the world to be, and and if we wish hard enough and we push, then maybe our dreams will come true. That is wholly begun in Pinocchio. Absolutely, when you wish upon a star is basically the Disney anthem now. Still to this day, yeah. when when Star Wars Episode Seven comes out, it will have when you wish upon a star to begin with. <laughs> That's oddly appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it is. Just as an animator watching this, too, I am impressed by uh, looking at Snow White, like, and this is very much craft of animation stuff, but looking at, like, animations of dwarves, the characters that aren't kind of carefully following a live-action rotoscope sort of thing, like the like Snow White and the, and the Prince, like, their kind of animation is appealing, and they've all got charm, but it's very busy. They're moving pretty much constantly. There's... Like they don't, they will not stay in a pose for very long. Usually, it's very just lots of chaos. But looking at, like, I was loved watching Jiminy Cricket kind of even just from the beginning in this one to come in because even just in the craft of st- character performance and animation, they are they came a long way. Like uh, look, like he will hit a pose. You can see a subtle like um, you can see subtle gestures and subtle expression changes, and he's really acting honestly for the first time they're not like tr- they're not basically kind of following a actor's performance f- or kind of doing a lot of really chaotic sort of big grand gestures there's actual acting happening to a much greater extent in this movie which as an animator i just loved watching i can't not say acting yeah, <laughs> yeah very much and it's still very like the uh kind of crossover from like the infusion of acting and 
drama and performance into what animators do was kind of happening more and more around this time and much more so as time passed but uh because animators are essentially kind of actors just we are working from the outside in as opposed from the inside out and uh yeah so it's just a pleasure for me just knowing that like just that there's an animator behind this performance i'm watching and i'm seeing just seeing them grow just to me for for all of these movies is just so cool when you wish upon a star make no difference who you are anything your heart desires will come to the present day, State of Pinocchio. So we spent a hell of a lot of extra time in preparing for this show and studying various films for more context, but let's start with the one where the cricket is played by that guy who got into all kinds of trouble with the angry chap who was briefly trained by Liam Neeson. Oh, that's uh, Joe Gordon-Levitt as Jiminy in Bob Zemeckis' Walt Disney's Pinocchio. Now, what does this film appear to be attempting, and does it accomplish more by dint of combining its elements? So what, as you were watching it in entirety, did you watch it, like, a bit of it and then stop or uh, with the uh, Zemeckis version and then go back to it in entirety this morning, or was this your first time, Victoria? Uh, so I tried to watch it a while ago, whenever the there was a conversation on the Discord about it, and um, I only got I don't know I think like five or ten minutes in when I was when I got distracted by other things. Right, right. I, very understandable. It's an easy film to get distracted from. Yeah, yeah. And then I watched it in its entirety, really, for the first time uh, this morning, and mm-hmm. it was like I had never watched those first like five ten minutes because I must have blocked it out because I didn't remember any of them. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. See, when it first uh, came out in September, uh, we watched it all as a family uh, on, I think, the Saturday morning after it uh, uh, launched. And I was like, you know what? Of the Disney remakes, since I don't have a particularly powerful love of the original Pinocchio, I mean, among its peers, I think I preferred it to uh, all the the originals, uh, aside from Dumbo, as in the first five, so you got Fantasia, Snow White and Seven Dwarves, and Bambi as well. 
before we get to the wartime ones. And then Cinderella, which again, written by Chris White for the uh, remake and is actually good, directed by Kenneth Branagh. I think we'll talk about that at some other point. But uh, it it feels like the movies that we adore, like Lion King and Mulan and uh, Beauty and the Beast, have so much going on in the 90s versions that it feels like if you're going to do this, you're going to either have to replicate it exactly, in which case, what's the point of this, or take some stuff out and put some new stuff in. In which case, what's the point of it? Because these are versions that people absolutely love. So, for example, with Mulan, Hmm. they took out all of the singing and the fun and they in put in instead a really serious story uh, and made it kind of a big uh, Zhang Yumo style wushu epic about a, a girl who's born with incredible chi powers and uh, is scolded by a shapeshifter for trying to be someone she isn't. And she's not. She's just having to abide by the rules of the army, which is no girls. She's not trying to be a man. Anyway, uh, the the film is dismal, and I think everyone missed all the good stuff about it. So when we saw, for example, Aladdin in the cinema with uh, our friend Paul, we all had a toe-tapping time, and we saw Beauty and the Beast in the cinema as well. And but the, the and the Lion King was sort of okay when we saw it. But the thing that keeps recurring in terms of these remakes is unlike the 90s renaissance films which i used to watch on vhs and then go i think i'll just rewind that and watch the whole thing again and it's over in an hour and 20 minutes and it's brilliant from beginning to end with these it feels like well that was fine and then you walk out and then you never really feel the need to watch that version of it of it again but you do want to watch the renaissance version again they are not making classics well they're they're remaking and repackaging classics. Yeah, but the, the remakes are not themselves classics. In themselves. classics. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I uh, I actually haven't seen any of the other live action remakes. Probably for the best. Uh, at all. I. It's one of those things where I took one look at several of them and thought that I have only so much finite time on this planet. And I'm not going to spend it on these. Uh, and and also, I'm you know pretty busy with work. But um, this is a heck of a of an introduction to the kind of uh, spiking the screen meta commentary sweaty dialogue that I can only sweaty assume. dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Keep going, keep going. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into it. But no, no, do just, it now. Do it now. Well, what I mean by sweaty dialogue is they have to tell you everything that is happening twice, even though we just saw it happen. <laughs> like, they, they explain... That's Chris White's for you. means boy made out of pine three times in this movie, twice back to back, within like five minutes of each other, in case you, I guess, had a stroke between them. Jeez. Like, oh... I'm semi-convinced Chris Weitz is so used to people falling asleep during his movies that he's now overcompensating for the possibility that you might fall asleep in the middle of a sentence. Yeah, but you're not going to wake up and absorb what's said in the next (laughs) sentence. Space that doubling up on the plot points out of it. You can say it three times, Chris, but you want one in the middle, one at each end. I mean, that we could we could level a lot of this at Chris White's because he's hurt us before in the past. And we kind of want... Like, Sharon and I want to give Zemeckis an out with this one because 
we he's provided us with such joy throughout our lives. I mean, the Back to the Future trilogy run through my blood. We're about to talk about uh, Contact and, you know, one of his magnificent but mostly kind of forgotten films. Mm. But at the same time, he kind of has to own the fact that, that so much of this is was disappointing to so many other people besides us. Well, even the greats are allowed a miss or two. That's absolutely fine. I, he I, also made Welcome to Marwen fairly recently. Yeah. I, uh, I, I do get Christmas what you Carol mean, was no picnic I, either. I do actually think that, it, it, script aside, and obviously Chris White's is going to have to carry some of the weight for that, and, and he has form for repeating himself, but I do think that Zemeckis as he's got older, has slipped more and more into this. We've got to make sure that everything is outlined for everyone. Who gets confused over by over Pinocchio? Over I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've never seen someone go, I don't understand how a little wooden boy can talk and walk. I mean, even the people in the film are like, well, it's a puppet, and it's talking, and this is fine. Like, no one ever freaks out, really, about the fact that this thing... The only person who's confused at this stage, Bob, is you. Yeah. <laughs> There's one, one random, the, the teacher at the school freaks out, but that's it. And it's kind of off screen, but I, this feels so much more like almost the more recent Marvel films too, where there's clearly a vision and it, you know, director be damned. And I, I don't know, like I, 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 like you, love Back to the Future, so many of the other movies that we associate with Zemeckis, but like... I couldn't associate any aspect of this to any of the like hallmarks of those older movies. It just felt like a Disney movie that was recreating like a best of series of 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 scenes from a much older Disney movie that I've probably seen several dozen times as a child and then not really doing anything with it other than introducing post irony like meta dialogue and then making sure that they say everything multiple times in case you fell asleep, and then remove any of the stakes or emotion from it. There is an irony of you saying that they said everything multiple times, multiple times. Sure, but I'm reiterating <laughs> the point, because I think it is very important. Uh, it's not just like me explaining the joke that we just saw twice. Yeah. I do agree that the whole... And this is something that, having seen a few of the remakes, can be levelled at most of them, is that they cling to... You've seen all the remakes. Have I? All of them. Okay. Every single one. Well, what they seem to do is cling to a visual reference and go, can we do a CG version of that? So, having watched numerous Pinocchio's today, it became very apparent that this version of Pinocchio where he is very smoothly shaped Mm. and wearing a hat and a bow tie and neat little shorts and neat little gloves. And has these great big blue eyes. Yeah, that is... It's not unique. There are other Pinocchio's who wear clothes, but this very... He has to be smoothed and shaped and as and to replicate a real boy as much as possible. Mm. Or at least the version of the real boy that we're trying to mould him into. Um, he needs to be replicated up to the version of the 1940 Pinocchio. Exactly, that's what I mean. Yeah. So so visually he is he is just a CG version of that. Mm. So they clearly 
in in those terms not wanting to do anything different with Pinocchio and there is a a sense of particularly in the relationship between Geppetto and Pinocchio and how they respond to each other this is very I would say emotionally neutral and very tempered in terms of how they both act Mm. which again is is different from anything that is more closely following the original text he's a sweet kid in this one of the issues that was leveled at him is he's too sweet he's too decent Mm. he almost acts like a hostage in his own movie not actually making decisions because people grab him and run him to the next scene well he personally has no arc because he hasn't really got anywhere to go stuff happens to him Mm. the one major major oversight is since this appears to be about uh well like that they're replicating the 1940 disney version in that version pinocchio makes decisions and most of them are bad And in this version, Pinocchio makes some decisions and all of them are good, but he is prevented from doing the good thing by various antagonists. So, for example, he's told to go to school by Geppetto. He hops off to school. By the way, in so many versions of Pinocchio, Geppetto's like, oh, my God, a toy has just come to life. And it's like... You know, in in this version and uh, Del Toro's, like, and he's my son as well. Like, you know, I've, I've I've got my son back who died. And in other cases, it's like there is a toy who's running around the place, smashing stuff up. But I'm going to try and sort of keep him under control. But usually, within about four hours of Pinocchio going from inert wood to a living child who's asking a lot of questions, Geppetto's kicking him out the door and saying, "Go to school." And then when Pinocchio doesn't come home from school that day, Geppetto goes off and ends up in the belly of a whale. And it seems like a massive stretch now in a modern context to go from, I wonder where my kid is, to, well, I'm stuck in this whale slash shark slash dogfish. (laughs) And then Pinocchio just happens to be swallowed by the same uh, whale. The issue here is that Geppetto doesn't homeschool Pinocchio at all, doesn't seem to know how to, or, and like, you know, there are authorities to deal with this stuff. I'm going to send you there, and I'm just going to send you off walking there. I'm not going to walk you to school myself. You'll know where the school is. Just ask people. Yeah, and even in the end, there's like a beat where it's like this heart, it's supposed to be this heartfelt reunion between the two of them where it almost implies there was some kind of like conflict or misunderstanding, but they just left the conflict or misunderstanding out in this version. Mm -hmm. There's no, uh, like Pinocchio at no point misunderstands something that Geppetto says and like goes off to do things. He's just... He, he he goes to the school. He he's a very good obeying son, and gets waylaid by a fox uh, and Who hasn't his goofy been. little cat, <laughs> and um, then shenanigans occur, and and they just happen at him, and it doesn't really matter and then he proves that he never needed Jiminy in the first place because he clearly has a conscience especially in the Pleasure Island sequence and so then there's like the heartfelt reunion but it's been one day like they they actually lampshade the fact that it has that the entire thing occurs in a single day Mm. which is just astonishing that they uh, canonize that 
<laughs> and then they're like, oh, I, of course I love you. Well, of course, yes, there has been no point wherein I think or the characters think that you don't. So I appreciate you reiterating that thing, Mr. Tom Hanks. Like, <sighs> sorry. That's okay. Uh, I uh, also heard, I think from Kermode, uh, that uh, Tom is just sleeping through this performance. I think he's going for something more slight. I, 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 it's possible just that I was swept up in the magic of Tom Hanks and his twinkling eyes, but I actually really liked Geppetto from the the word go. Maybe just the muttering to himself. He seems like less of a creep than most other Geppettos. Uh, <laughs> and it also seems like he's a little bit not quite all there. So uh, he's like, you know, look, I'm an old guy. I'm, I can't teach you everything. That's for schools to teach you. So mm. I'm just going to send you off. So you can sort of understand it, but at the same time, the, the the central issue is still that Pinocchio has decisions made for him. When he goes to school, and by the way, when he's walking through the street, do you remember that big pile of horse shit that he crouches down to sniff? Mm-hmm. I was like, when I watched that, going, no, don't, don't, uh, don't do that shot, because that will be every thumbnail on the videos that get to the top of the YouTube algorithm from people who hate this film and are, especially those who are performatively angry at it. And and ultimately, there's people who love Disney who hate these films because in their eyes, this is betraying the legacy. And, you know, some folks would be like, this is not what Walt would want. And it's like, not like this. And then there's other people who are like, just, I I understand and appreciate film, and this is a bad version of that. And then there's other people who are like, I hate Disney because it gets me clicks. I well, that, that scene in particular, uh, so I watched this with my wife, and she grew up on a, a horse compound. Uh, and so <laughs> when we got to that scene, she goes, oh, horse apples. And I went, oh, no, he dropped the apple, and now he's going to pick up a horse turd <laughs> and carry that to the school oh, and, and, and give it to teacher. And the next shot, you can't tell that he had, that he did in fact pick up the real apple and is carrying it. And I was just, the whole time I'm like, Oh, please don't be that crass. What is going on right now? <laughs> I, ugh. That but, does make me wonder if Robert Zemeckis signed some kind of contract with the devil at some point where it's like, okay, Bob, you're going to be a successful filmmaker, but every film you ever make has to have a manure shot in it. Oh, God. <laughs> Is that why they put it in there? There's one in Christmas Carol as well. Oh, <laughs> Okay, well, either way, it's the thumbnail if you look on YouTube. And it's sort of, you know, Disney is shit now, and this is what Disney is. And it's a a nice, easy symbolism. Uh, But here's the issue. I I also wanted to point out that uh, Tom Hanks literally sleeps through half of the first 30 minutes of this movie, so... Indeed, he does. Uh, although, uh, luckily, his uh, um, his many, many cuckoo clocks wake him up, which I'm assuming they do on the hour, which means, like, how do you sleep at night? As his neighbor, I would be just turning up the next day with a baseball bat that I carved out of a bigger baseball bat, just tapping it against my open palm going, you're going to sell some of those cuckoo clocks today. Next time I hear someone round your doorway asking to buy a cuckoo clock, if you don't immediately say yes and start depleting your supply of the things that ruin my peace, this bat is going right up your fundament. 
See, it would have made sense if any of the cuckoo clocks they they apparently only go off once a day mm. uh, at whatever six time o'clock apparently is. according to well, a different version of Pinocchio. Yeah, a different version of Pinocchio, but he wakes up for no reason. So so the the blue fairy shows up his his magical social worker who is apparently not actually the one that gave life to Pinocchio and cuz she shows up and is like confused about it it's very it's a very weird scene she does an entire song and dance there's a big conversation between the three characters that can speak in that scene and the whole time i'm thinking man Geppetto is a heavy sleeper <laughs> and and so then she and then a mouse farts and he wakes up screaming i, I if i remember right it's like the click of the window shutting yeah it, it's something totally innocuous he's like oh did i hear something and then one of the alarm clocks is like the, the drunk one the one that's not a disney property that is shoehorned in there mm-hmm. <sighs> somebody pointed out that uh, because the clocks are cgi if they had all been made practically that would have been so much more of a charming scene i can't disagree because we as like our type of film aficionado type, like people who love practical are just so charmed by that level of craftsmanship. It's why stop motion to us, we can feel the fingerprints on them. You know, we'll get to this in a bit, but like to, to us, that's the hardest of hard work animation. And to us, CG is just really easy. It's just a bunch of mouse and point clicks. Which is not true. And we know that it's artists and people who have great technical skill working on it, but it does lack that visceral sense of this is here and whenever I watch something that is heavy Mm. on the CG I'm always acutely aware of that I think we also were aware of the um, we have a problem we need to solve it with uh, cunning filming techniques and a cunning filming technique is not let's just run the camera along this wall and we'll CG in stuff later make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. but uh, I will point out Cynthia Erivo, uh, who plays the Blue Fairy, was a very welcome addition to this. She's not in it anywhere near as much as she should be, because in the book, Pinocchio meets her repeatedly. But this is not an adaptation of the book. It's a remake of the adaptation of the book that was the 1940 film. Uh, but she's she was absolutely fucking fantastic in Bad Times at the El Royale and Widows in particular. And Harriet, which is all about Harriet Tubman. I, I wondered where I had known her from. Yeah, she rules in Bad Times at the El Royale. That yeah. movie is great. In most versions of Pinocchio, and the other one that we'll be talking about later is like no exception, there's more of a connection between the the spirit, the fairy that shows up and like Geppetto and Geppetto's situation and, and Pinocchio. And in this one, she shows up and a lot of her dialogue, se- like I said before, seems kind of confused. Like she has been assigned to this case and is kind of like just getting up to speed. And it, it it felt so bizarre the way that it was scripted to me. Mm. I um, think part of that may be to do with the, the lack of, and if you'll excuse the pun, which will make sense in a minute, a root of where Pinocchio comes from. So the Disney version of Pinocchio, there is nothing especially significant about the wood from which he is made. In every other version, it's either a very significant tree or it's a log that was alive already and came to Geppetto and then he decides to make a puppet from it. Mm. Whereas this Pinocchio is Geppetto decides to make the puppet... And it it sort of stems from grief and that side of it 
is is a good kind of basis for that. But the the actual place the life comes from is a bit um, non-specific. Nebulous. Nebulous. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so. To go back to Pinocchio not making decisions for himself. So he's he's hovering over the horse shit, and this is around about the time that Keegan-Michael Key, uh, the extremely ostentatious Honest John Fox, who I actually like the animation of because he actually looks like a wily and camp fox, uh, comes running in there with the... Uh, uh, is the cat called Nicodemus? I forget. Uh, Gideon, Gideon. Gideon, that's Gideon. the one. Yeah. Uh, and... Sorry, Nicodemus is uh, Maid Marian's cat from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> Find mice. So he goes, an actor, you've got to be an actor, nay, an influencer. And I can see what they're doing. They're effectively illustrating the pressure on little kids to be famous. And I'm like, this could be a theme. And it is immediately dropped. Yes, it is. And Honest John follows this up when after you have the scene where Pinocchio tries to go to school, but then the schoolmaster won't let him in. That was what I was about to say. Then we move on to the school. Pinocchio is being a good boy and he is thrown out like for just for being who he is, which seems like it might be a theme. And goes nowhere. It's so frustrating that this film seems like a bunch of things that might be themes. You're like, are you a theme? No, I'm just an incident. <laughs> Indeed. It's an incident disguised as a theme. I'm dressed as a theme. <laughs> I don't think a theme would wear a smock with its face on it. It would at Halloween. Um, so as Pinocchio is sort of leaving the school shamefully... Um, he bumps into Honest John again. For being an this, abomination. This is one of the things that really annoyed me because the the speech that John comes out with at this point is all this stuff about how school is clearly not the right environment for you. You are a special child and you deserve to have uh, a, um, an education that is more suited to your unique situation and comes out with all of these buzzwords to do with modern day teaching that because of who's delivering them and because of the way he's delivering them immediately feel like the makers of this film have a modern schooling attitude which got my back up no end um victoria in other words on that one honest john is supposed to spout only bullshit because he's a villain he's not supposed to be right exactly a degree of what he says in this speech to me is accurate Hmm. So as um, an educator who specifically works in educational design, um, I was very familiar with a lot of those buzzwords. Mm. And um, I thought you might be. Yeah, yeah. I, I literally wrote, oh, my God, pedagogy joke. What is happening? Um, I do want to point out, Honest John, sort of my favorite part of the movie. Um, <laughs> I, brilliant. I, can't, life for me. I mean, I, you know, I, it's just something about a, a, a really good fox. Um, <laughs> just gets I don't to know. you. Yeah, yeah. He was, an, like you said, animated really well. Uh, it was like him and Figaro mm. were like really well animated. And I, I, I appreciated that. Oh, Figaro, but, you mean the, the cat that belongs to Geppetto, but not yeah. his buddy Gideon. Right. No, Gideon's a goofball who stepped out of Cool World, but um, 
I feel like uh, Figaro may pass the, it's disgusting, why didn't they get a real cat test? Because you kind of forget about him eventually and, and just, uh, that's about the best they can do. They did their best and that's really all you can do. And he moves like a real cat. Like he's just a cat. You know, he, at no point does he talk or she, I have no idea. But anyway, the pedagogy stuff, some of it is like, I have been in long retreats where people talk about growth mindset and I'm just like, holy crap, my, my, my dudes, like, is this is the level that we're at talking about it. And it's one of those things where it's a lot of concepts that in the instructional design space have some kind of merit, but have been buzzworded to the point of being nonsense. So like, I kind of get where they're going, but it is kind of interesting, the implication, putting it into one of the villain's mouths to say, like, I'm 100% with you, Sharon. So it's, it it feels like a weird, almost like, like, boomery, like, kind of, uh, like, anti-progressive stance of mm. just kind of like, oh, look at all these buzzwords. These kids just need obedience and lectures kind of kind of feel to it mm. um but there are a lot of moments like that like did you notice that only the villains speak italian most of the time Ooh. like th- there are so many like little things that as we're watching it we're we're like wait a minute that feels like a strange theme like you know okay it's a disney movie all of the villains are you know grotesque or non-human in some way um visually which is just a Disney thing. But the fact that they made it so only like there's like one character that is not a, a specific villain that says something in Italian and it is the school teacher person who is leading the children. She says hello in Italian to Geppetto and that's it. But the rest of it Buongiorno. Is Stromboli and uh, like a couple. Um, there was another character, too, that, that speaks a lot of Italian. And it's just like. Well, what is being said here? Well, everyone else speaks English, except for this guy. Well, Stromboli is kind of like Watto, as in he's like a catch-all of every single ethnic stereotype in one dude. So he is offensive to everyone, but doesn't really like directly uh, apply to just one particular ethnic stereotype, if that makes sense. Yeah, and he also comes in as another one of these uh, characters who is positioned as an obstacle to Pinocchio and prevents Pinocchio from making a good choice in a situation where he is about to. It is noteworthy, by the way, that the original character in the Pinocchio book, which I feel has some problems, and we'll be getting to them soon, uh, his name was uh, Mangiafuco instead of Stromboli. He doesn't... like he, His original intention is to throw Pinocchio on the fire to cook his mutton. And Pinocchio says, no, please don't. I don't want to go on a fire. And then he goes, fine, I'll throw the Harlequin puppet on instead. And her, uh, Pinocchio says, no, please don't burn this Harlequin puppet, which should be inert, but isn't. And uh, he tells him the story about Geppetto and his father. And the this massive antagonist actually not only lets Pinocchio go as a result of that, he gives him five gold coins. There is a lot of money going back and forth, like small amounts of money going back and forth in the story. And it seems to be like, Pinocchio, here is your responsibility. I am putting this in your hands so that he can then make lots of stupid decisions with that responsibility and be taken in repeatedly by Honest John and Gideon. Which is a very fairy tale 
thing, like a, um, a, a motif of a fairy tale being where the character is given a small item that, strictly speaking, doesn't mean anything, but they have been given the task to get it from A to B. And the events of the story are about them being obstructed in doing that. And mm. what part of yourself do you need to develop in order for you to be able to overcome that? We'll get back, get back to the uh, book and the parallels in the middle section of this. Then there's the, uh, well, for a start, there's the seagull voiced by Lorraine Bracco, who I thought was like, that's terrible casting when I first saw it, because she's got a voice like this. But she's totally memorable. And now I kind of look forward to hearing Lorraine Bracco's voice coughing out of this seagull. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Pinocchio! Geppetto moved away! He went to go find Monstro, where you clearly are, or something. Let's go to the next section. It's that. As a seagull, she's eaten a lot of cigarettes. I mean, yes. <laughs> completely. Yeah, that does seem totally legit. Yeah. So, speaking uh, of random things talking, though, mm-hmm. did you notice that at no point Geppetto recognizes that Jiminy can speak? The, I did not. Those, it's one of those things where, like, obviously, Sophia talks to anybody who's not human uh but geppetto like jiminy talks to pinocchio other things talk to pinocchio because pinocchio is like a thing and not a human i guess question mark but near the end when pinocchio says oh yeah he's my conscience and geppetto looks at jiminy kind of for the first time in the Mm. movie and says you're his conscience and then doesn't react to his response it's such a weird moment because, like, Jiminy's are... You mean one of those, characters. oh, shit, we never actually filmed a reaction to this in the earlier scenes. Let's do something now. Yeah, because he's responding to Pinocchio saying that, mm. not to Jiminy. And and Jiminy's, like, our point of view character. He's our narrator for so much of this, although he gets in arguments with himself, which goes back to the sweaty dialogue. But <clears throat> it's it's just such a weird thing geppetto speaks to no one more often in this movie than he speaks to a person who he can talk to yeah on that note actually now that i think about it one of the strengths of the film and possibly the way i was taken in by uh, america's uncle tom hanks he acts like he's talking to a puppet who is alive a lot like he when he talks to Pinocchio, his eyeline is there and he's giving us some physical responses on his face. He doesn't do the uh Ewan McGregor thing in The Phantom Menace where he sort of looks past Jar Jar mm. and feels in no way in particular about it, because obviously all the drama of this is to do with Pinocchio and Geppetto's feelings about each other. Mm. Instead of a tennis ball on a stick, they got him a basketball with a face on it. Well sir! <laughs> Sorry. When he was in the boat, I was expecting, like, because it's that kind of wink and nod shit. I expected Wilson to float past in the background. Also directed by Zemeckis, Castaway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, is this I, this might be the only Tom Hanks film where he doesn't pee on camera, too, just for the record. Seriously? He does it in a shocking number of his films. <laughs> I know he tends to shout. Uh, in I, I think we've said this before about him as Woody. Uh, he has a particularly. I don't think he pees as Woody. <laughs> he has a particularly appealing way of shouting, where we don't think like, "I wish you'd stop shouting." That mm. sounds awful. We are amused and compelled by it. Like it's that's a gift as an actor. Mm. Oh, absolutely. It it is part of this sort of I think softening of any. Uh, 
inadvertent intensity that this film might mm. stumble into. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And for the record, uh, like just here, like A League of Their Own, The Terminal, The Burbs, Road to Perdition, The Money Pit, Forrest Gump, Castaway, Apollo 13, Saving Private Ryan, The Green Mile, and Captain Phillips all have pivotal scenes wherein Tom Hanks is urinating. Yeah. Uh, I remember the one from The Green Mile. That was the one that immediately sprung to mind. Are you looking this up on pissflix.com? <laughs> If that wasn't a website when yeah. we started, it is Not now. You pause for breath before clicking on that. <laughs> and that's probably a subset. I just remember like reading or hearing things on podcasts about Tom Hanks loves to pee on camera. I'm like, that's a weird thing. He just thing. loves it's it. It's his thing. It's up there with like Brad Pitt always eats on camera. In his mm. And Val Kilmer always takes his sunglasses off in a sexy way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the girl with the leg brace is the most notable Disney uh, from the modern era uh, edition. It's it's now got to the point where when Disney go look, a woman of color can do something, and in this case, a woman of color who is disabled. They've now do it so tokenistically, so one per film, so every time that we've stopped praising them for it because it feels almost like oh, I've got to check this box. Which sucks because it is representation and it is really sweet the way she can not only dances through the puppets but communicates through the puppets. Mm. Like that's her avatar. Yeah. I think my my issue with the way she's portrayed is that they did not fully lean into the whole because she has this brace on her leg and therefore can't move the way that she would instinctively want to, mm. all of her expression goes through the puppets. Because they have the scene where she has her song and they go, but look, she can dance. Mm. And it's almost like, then what are we doing? Yeah. they off People, when they're doing disability on film, and I really, really had to try to not do this in mind, people... It, it can often feel like people with disability don't get frustrated at their disability. And we know Zemeckis can do this because Gary Sinise in Forrest Gump as Lieutenant Dan got really pissed off with his legs. Mm-hmm. She, she felt like the protagonist of a different movie. Yes. Uh, yes. In, in so many scenes. But, and especially because as we're watching this, they're making a really big deal, especially up to that point, about what makes a person a real person. Mm. And there, there's a lot of talk about that with, you know, Pinocchio. And there's a, it, it's kind of too incoherent to be much of a theme, but it, it is a whole lot of... It's another about, th- like, no. uh, disguised theme. Yeah. Or no, yeah. theme in... A, well, sorry, something disguised as a theme that's actually just an element. It's, it's, it's trying to be a theme, but... So everybody's talking to Pinocchio, well, you're not real, you're a puppet. And so now we meet a, a person who is partially disabled who is relegated to the background and has to live through a puppet which the movie would imply that the one disabled character the one person of color that has a major role is not a real person by the language of the film up to that point up to that point and it's very concerning and then there's a like romance arc of sorts that just was uncomfortable um, between Pinocchio and, and her puppet. I, I just didn't know what to do with that. It was just a weirdly... Ugh, like, Pinocchio's like eight or something. He's he's not... Eight hours? Yeah, well, I mean, he's literally a day old. But 
Uh, Very naive just... about things. That's the point. Little, little, little kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I it just... Ugh. I do get what you mean about the, the being real thing, though, as well, Victoria. I got a couple of notes on the the comments and, and things that people say to Pinocchio to, to sort of communicate their opinion on what makes a real person. And aside from the, uh, the outline that he's given by the Blue Fairy and the school teacher telling him that because he's made of wood, he's not real. You're an abomination. Entitled to an education. You've got Honest John saying, if you're going to be real, everybody has to know who you are. You've got uh, Sabrina's puppeteer saying, to be, if you're going to be real, you have to have a, a way to express yourself. And then Lampwick is sort of, if you're, if you're going to be real, you have to cut loose and wreck stuff but you're right it none of those really so lampwick is basically fred durst that's literally who i was thinking of (laughs) Um, you just want to break something (laughs) exactly um but yeah none of it sort of becomes coherent enough to develop in into what it should do which is pinocchio internalizing all of these observations and eventually deciding for himself what constitutes being a real boy. I th- I do think that's what they end up with at the end, and I will come back to that about a, another point that I want to make about it that um, that Willow and I discussed, but the the strings don't seem to come together, ironically. Mm. <laughs> so he seems to fall into the kidnapping cart to Pleasure Island. This is another one of those he-doesn't-really-make-a-decision-here situations. He says, I don't trust you, to the guy who's uh, running the cart, played by Luke Evans. And it's like, whoa, stop the cart. And then like, everyone stares at Pinocchio and goes, now, do you, do you want to come to Pleasure Island and do you trust me? Or do you want to walk home in the dark and not be friends with all of these boys? And ultimately, this is an important lesson about peer pressure. But I'm not sure that him going, okay, for the time being, was really the wrong thing to do at that point. They're out in the middle of butt fuck nowhere in the dark. And also, this guy seems mildly psychotic and might just smash him to pieces. Maybe Pinocchio's biding his time. Also... It doesn't seem like a bad decision, is my point. Pinocchio learns what the word peer means Mm. literal seconds before he's picked up by the the child collector. Mm -hmm. Like, literally, the conversation that he's having with Jiminy seconds before he's nabbed is defining what the word peer means so he can understand what peer pressure is. Jiminy doesn't even get to finish explaining what peer pressure is. Before this is Ready Player out. One writing. This is, oh my god, uh, the, the trial is joust. Luckily, I've been playing joust all summer. Yeah, it's way... I feel like it's... I, again, I'm going to use the word again. It's way sweatier than that. <laughs> like, it has to set it up because it knows it's got it a sweaty cricket. Immediately. And, oh, the whole Pleasure Island thing, I have so many notes for. I'm also mm. annoyed that Honest John doesn't come back because in the 1940s one, Honest John is the one who hires the child collector yeah like it gives some kind of through line to bringing the same character back and this reminds me that we skipped over something that i really wanted to highlight go for it mentioning honest john uh the whole nose growing scene for for this to get him out of the cage mm-hmm. in Scrumbully's uh wagon other also i, I really appreciated fabinia uh, fabina i think is her name being like we're gonna unionize like that's pretty great um 
that that, that was what the the puppeteers were going to do. But then, so Pinocchio. For and Strom. By Pin- the way, Stromboli gets uh, uh, dealt with off camera. It's like, relax, okay? He's going to jail. Yeah, he's apparently going to Azkaban. And, <laughs> and, and it's just so. Pinocchio lies for the first time in his short life, literally born yesterday, and his nose grows. And, like, there's no reason for it. There's no explanation for it until Jiminy says, I wrote it down, that lies change you physically, that lies make you grotesque. And so that goes back into what I was saying earlier, that, like, is Honest John an anthro fox that no one really has any problem with because he's a liar is stromboli relatively grotesque do beautiful people never lie yeah that's a really weird thing to tell kids that is it is a very disney thing though and not just about the lying but about the you know ugly people are ugly because they are also ugly on the inside see every stepsister and stepmother that ever had the unfortunateness to exist in a disney guess which poor sod got turned into a beast when he said get out of here you ugly liar i don't want your rose (laughs) and even in this scene pinocchio is lying to escape it is, the scene itself is showing us that in the right circumstances, lies can be necessary and useful for the continuation of your existence. The Del Toro one does that too. It, but it he uses it as a skill. At least it sets it up. Oh yeah, up it does more. everything else very, very yeah. well. But it does do that, and it's 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 fine. For, uh, in the Del Toro one. In this, again, I don't have that much of a problem with it, but ultimately, it's just going through the motions. It's like, what? remember this bit from Pinocchio, here it is again. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe I, um, since I, I watched the Del Toro one last night, so I was still thinking about, like, okay, what themes can I pull out of this movie? And Loads. it's such a fragmented uh, script that I was, like, desperate to come up with things. And I was thinking about how... So, so he immediately apologizes twice to get his nose back down into like normal size after lying like a dozen times, mm. and and it's just in the book the it gets pecked down to size by woodpeckers magically. Oh, that sounds horrifying. Um, but oh, it's going to be difficult for Pinocchio to get his nose down to size. Actually, it's going to be super easy. Barely an Is inconvenience. This? Oh, really? <laughs> Are you talking about the erotic adventures again? I'm- no. <laughs> no, that's a different woodpecker. No, that, it just it keeps going until he sneezes and then it just... Jesus. If, if your nose elongates for more than four hours, seek professional help. Um, but it, it, it's just We call it a nasal priapism. It's just the idea that, okay, yes, lies make you horrifying and will change you physically. And, like, he, he lies a dozen times to get his nose very long. But then it shows that apologizing twice is like 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 rectifies all of that so it's like you can lie as long as you say sorry for it sometimes what is this like what is this trying to tell the viewer about lies nothing because then it comes to nothing and he never lies again in a meaningful way and his nose never grows again it never gets called back to it is just do you remember this scene from the 1940s pinocchio here you go we gave it to you again. It's another incident disguised as a theme. Yes, okay. but but again, there's these there's they are they are taking scenes from other from other iterations of this and putting them in without any of the supporting details, mm. which means they have these fragmented themes that, w- in the whole, usually subverts itself. 
Yeah. And, yeah. Okay, so Pleasure Island, and I, I said this back when we watched it and, and were quite enjoying it that first time. We still enjoyed it the second time, but like, uh, having seen the Del Toro one, I was like, they, they could be doing so much more with this and diverting from the standard Disney template like of, of, of what we've already seen, but that's not their remit. They don't want to divert from it. They shan't and shouldn't. Ultimately, The Lion King made a billion dollars mm. because it didn't really deviate from it. It just re-delivered these pellets of remember these these dry pellets remember this now he's going to sing Hakuna Matata with these two new people who are who look a bit like Timon and Pumbaa if they were real uh, so like we could blame Disney all day long for having low creativity in this regard however they'd they'd have stopped if the Lion King had tanked they'd have stopped if Aladdin had tanked they'd have stopped if Cinderella had tanked they'd have stopped if if Beauty and the Beast had tanked we give them Transformers money collectively as, as, ma- as massive audiences. And we give them prominence by talking about Cruella and keeping that at the top of the algorithm. Even negativity keeps this thing, and especially negativity in some t- uh, cases, keeps this thing in the discourse. The absolute last thing you want is to be the thing that launches at the same time as something that's being talked about a lot for good and for bad. Mm. And I do appreciate the irony of us saying that in a show in which we are talking about it. Yes. And uh, on the weekend where we were supposed to be seeing Avatar 2, The Way of Water, yeah. but for some reason our local Odeon had blocked my Limitless card. You will card. see it in 3D. Not nearly as limitless as the Limitless card would suggest. Yes. Anyway, so when they're in Pleasure Island, uh, first off I was like, how does the economy of this place work? Because these kids are running fucking riot in this lavish theme park, and they're behaving in ways that would just get them killed. They're, like, arsing about on top of the Ferris wheel. That's just a death trap. And they're smashing everything that they can see, like like tiny savages. And I thought... The ultimate aim here is to turn them into donkeys. How much are donkeys going to get you? How much are the salt mines paying you for these things? To to then have to renovate this theme park each and every time to bring it up to standards that these kids don't necessarily need to get to. Like, you're presenting them with a theme park that can't even exist. You don't need to make it this amazing. I assume that the Shadow Wraiths rebuild it because there's just magical Shadow Wraiths made out of sand and evil, I guess. (laughs) Sand? Oh, damn, I forgot the evil. Yeah, yes, that's the important part. That's what really brings... What I've got here is a sandcastle. The thing that frustrates me so much about the Pleasure Island sequence is... What Again, what is this saying? It is saying that children playing is bad, like explicitly so in the beginning. It says root beer is bad. <laughs> it says theme parks are bad. And See, Sharon said that, and I was like, yeah, but they're making this theme park look rad, and, then, and people are watching it and going, man, I don't want to go to that theme park that turns you into a donkey, but Disneyland sounds pretty sweet right about now. Well, okay, so first off, this feels like, hey, did, you, did this look rad? Wait until the new part of disney world opens up and secondly i know a lot of people who would love to go to a place like that and get turned into a donkey (laughs) (laughs) 
There oh. is that. Okay, there is that. Like, okay, so when's the donkey thing happening? <laughs> yeah, right? And, and, a, and a million TF fetishists were born. But um, Side note, by the way. Sideways into the erotic adventures of Pinocchio. I know you haven't seen it, but there is also what appears to be critiquing of Walt Disney and Disneyland in Dumbo as well. But it's done in that kind of, is this a theme? Not really, it's Tim Burton way. <sighs> okay, great. It, it, it's, um, it's what is commonly known in English parlance as cocking a snook. Yes, <laughs> it cocks a snook. Okay, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good phrase. I mean, this Tim right. Burton <laughs> thinks he's cock of the walk. Well, he's <laughs> cock of nothing. The, the thing, though, is that this is a theme park. It is like, it is a designed experience. It's like a video game. Yeah, it's themed and after Disneyland. The children in said park are not transgressing because they are being invited to smash those things mm-hmm. by the setups. They are being invited to put on weirdly, like, f- feels kind of uncomfortable, like, protest riot kind of imagery. Like, is a saying that, like, protests and riots are bad. And, and they are doing it, – it's like if you go to one of those parlors that are just like like uh, rage parlors, like actual things that exist in real life where you go in and everything in there, you can just smash. You you get a crowbar in 10 minutes and you can just take your frustration oh, out. Oh, I want to go to a place like that. Right? And, and it is it is inviting you into that. Again, like what's where, the economy on that, though? What I mean, How much are you paying to oh, destroy all these these old things? It's friggin' magic. Who knows? He has shadow wraith. He's turning <laughs> into donkey. You're making but this it, up. Do I get to turn into a donkey? Just just yeah, asking for that, a friend. Mm, <laughs> but but it, it's just the idea that, like, oh, okay, so, so the point of Pleasure Island is not that the children are transgressing the rules of the space they're in it's that they are transgressing transgressing societal norms mm-hmm. by drinking root beer and going to theme park rides it just it, it doesn't have anywhere near the same cohesiveness if a creepy of, welsh guy pulls up in a horse and cart and offers you a trip to a theme park and all the root beer you can drink just say no unless he offers to turn you into a donkey then if you're into it <laughs> knock go go for it whatever but it, it it is just this idea that like what are they transgressing against? Because there's a there's a big theme in this and in the next one we're going to talk about about rules obeying and disobeying, and how can you disobey it? Like if anyone, Pinocchio is the one who is disobeying in this place by not participating in the actions that the space is inviting you to do, and and it just makes no sense. <laughs> Makes me so mad. Uh, and also, he doesn't do anything wrong. Pinocchio, at no point, does anything. He, he barely even drinks the root beer. Like, why does he get turn, Why does he get the donkey ears and tail, even though it does look kind of cool because it's like puppet stuff? I think that that's but, honestly as much of their thinking as it is, because he does not partake of the poison chalice of root beer, that delicious beer. foaming nut brown root beer, and because he doesn't smash anything, he's like, mm, I'm not sure, I'm a morally upright young citizen, and this feels wrong to me. Uh, unlike Lampwick, who gets a David Cronenberg body horror, he ends up only partially donkeyfied. Yeah, and but so then that implies that 
if you go to this place and you play by the rules, you are transgressing societal norms and should be a donkey. If you go to this place <clears throat> and resist because you are a good, upstanding, conscious individual of moral character, well, you're transgressing the rules of the space, so become a donkey too, I guess. So there's no, like, theme. There's nothing you can take out of it. It is just a trap. Hmm. And uh, the the book... Because this is like what we're what we're picking at here is what we're we're sort of just feeling the edges of is that the book is actually trying to tell kids don't be a little gobshite listen to your parents be good go to school get an education pay attention and then use that learning to work really really hard and work really really hard and then you'll be a good person and have a soul and you'll effectively you. You'll live a good life that way. It's not a poisonous thing to teach them. And ultimately, Miyazaki's rather keen on the whole uh, redemption through working your ass off. But it is very much saying to stay in line and never question it. Because that's kind of what this donkey thing is. Like, it's, it's uh, you know, you get to act like animals and thus you get turned into animals. But it's it's the domestication element specifically because they are turned into animals which are used mm. for work. And the way the 2019 one, which I mentioned was really, really good, shot the donkey section, it wasn't one of these extremely expensive-ass theme parks. It's basically just a big farm. And the kids were sort of playing tug-of-war and jumping in and out of these filthy water tanks. And I was like, oh, God, this place is made out of tetanus. If you don't turn into a donkey, you're going to catch something. Quick, yeah. But donkeys have got antibodies (laughs) and stuff. Um, But then when they turn into donkeys, like, there was way too much... Don- like the the donkey acting was sharp. I was really feeling for these poor poor animals. Like you're, you're supposed to. That's clearly what they were they were doing. But there is an undercurrent of the you know, Victorian child labour being an atrocity, and it just felt much more like they had their finger on the pulse of you can shoot this in a way that makes it look like child exploitation, as opposed to the kids actually did something wrong. Mm, yeah, and. Certain somebody does it quite well. Indeed. Mm-hmm. We'll get to him in a minute. Uh, so, uh, anything else on um, Ple- Pleasure Island? Which this is- feels like a good time to jump into that obey-disobey rules kind of yeah. thing, because we're really not going to revisit it through the whole monster section. Not for um, in this, but we are definitely coming back to obey and disobey with Get Del Toro. So don't uh, don't seek to exhaust the subject. No. The, the theme is still currently up, up there in the inaccessible parts right now. We can think about it, but we can't get to it. But I, I think that it is appropriate to mention what this movie is saying about rules and obeying them. Mm-hmm. So Morals and ethics them. and carnal forbearance. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> well, and, and this is supposed to be, you know, a, a morality tale for children. Like, essentially, is, is what we're playing with here, with the, the original thing. So the things we know is that in the beginning, Geppetto is seen as, like, weird or at least, like, of a lesser being because he runs a shop and refuses to sell things, which is transgressing a rule of society. And in the end... One of the things that he has to learn is that he should sell his cuckoo clocks from his store so he can go out and try to save Pinocchio, which is just like a weird moment, I I thought. Um, He sold all the cuckoo clocks and bought a rowboat, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, a nice little dinghy. Ultimately, um, like at the beginning, because we mention his son, and also there's a brief hold in one of the cuckoo clocks on the Sleeping Beauty clock, which has uh, Briar Rose prick her finger on a spindle and then fall back into a dead sleep, but they hold on it for just a few extra seconds, just to, I don't know if it was intentional, but leave the implication that he had a wife who died. Because he, he, yeah. he actually says her name okay. at one point that like evoking like, oh, I miss you. Although he seems actually like way more like having worked through his grief than most other versions of Geppetto I've seen. Yeah, including the Del Toro um, one. And very much so. So then Jiminy Cricket shows up and is dressed kind of like a traditional hobo. And the Blue Fairy like dunks on him for that and then as soon as he look at that badly dressed cricket yeah way better way way worse than sebastian j cricket (laughs) who is a hero but uh the blue fairy dunks on him for being a like drifter hobo layabout and then gives him a job and upon getting a job he gets an entirely new wardrobe that he is no longer visually unpleasant he is now employed yikes which is just so strange um pinocchio multiple times is told to obey all the rules obey what people tell you and he's just like yeah okay sounds good um (laughs) even because um, he's not going to argue with that he's a good kid and he has no arc he is literally a day old he didn't know what the sun was (laughs) so like like, of course he's just going to believe what people tell him. He's literally born yesterday. Uh, so he he goes so he goes to the school and all that kind of stuff, and he goes he falls in with Honest John, which is the only reasonable thing to do in that moment, I feel like. Um, oh, and so then we get the puppeteers with Stromboli. Mm. And they're like working under his horrible rule, and they talk about that they're going to, like, steal the money back and seize control of the Unionize? In a way Walt wouldn't like? We're gonna unionize. And then he gets imprisoned, entirely unrelated to their doing, and they just take all his stuff. So, like, even then, they were still following the rules, more or less. Like, they weren't transgressing in the sense of, like, let us unionize and no rise rising up, up revolution or negotiation required just the law yeah. just eventually the comeuppance came to the wrongdoer exactly it's prison ex machina that eventually the evil person will be taken by the police relax okay he's going to jail these the the oft spoken words of denny from the room yeah mm. <laughs> a child's and, and, view of what happens with criminals yeah, yeah. And, and so then it just like, you know, it kind of falls apart for the most uh, for the rest of the movie where he kind of, you know, he goes to Pleasure Island. There's not really a whole lot of like like I was just saying, the obey, disro- disobey rules kind of thing kind of falls to pieces because of like the way the space is and like what it's trying to say. And then uh, the whole thing is he's supposed to have given in to temptation, even though we never see that happen once. And then uh, he gets back and he meets the puppeteer again. Uh, and. And the whole thing there is, like, he says, no, actually, I can't come with you. I need to go and save my father, Geppetto. And she, his friend, with a weird romance thing with her puppet avatar, uh, says, yeah, that's reasonable. Sounds good. Like, they're friends. Like, there's no – what temptation is there? 
I, I don't understand how that is a temptation good enough to counteract whatever temptation he gave into in Pleasure Island. Yeah, um, like ultimately, uh, if, if when he gets back with Geppetto, if he's like, um, traveling puppet show, is that offer still open? Yes, you're the most magical puppet around. He'd yeah, be headhunted. She, she even says, we'll be back next year if you want to join us. Yeah. Like, it just leaves that open because they're friends. Like, it, it seems like a weird kind of, uh, of, of of temptation to give into. But then the whole obey, disobey rules thing is just out the window. But for the most part, it seems like you should obey the rules of society, which is get a job, don't be a bum, listen to what people tell you and do it, and don't drink root beer? <laughs> so and Do not run away and join the circus, whatever you do. Yeah. Well, not twice. Not you can't twice, do it twice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Once is fine. Because then you can realise the error of your ways and come home. Once is fine as long as you lie a whole bunch to get out of the problem. <laughs> and then apologise. And then apologise twice to your cricket friend. Okay, okay. Right, so we get to Monstro. And actually, I think that the Monstro in this is more impressive than the one in the GDT version, which is astonishing to say, considering the uh, how much this guy loves monsters and how much work went into those kaiju in Pacific Rim. I, like, the, this shark whale thing plus Cthulhu tentacles has had a lot of thought put into it in terms of, like, how massive it feels. So, points there. I, I hate to disagree. Nah. It, it looks so much like a Dungeons and Dragons Aboleth. Like it looks <laughs> almost identical to what an Aboleth looks like in Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. So, well, so maybe like, they were oh. hoping that just like me, people would be like, I don't want to know what an Aboleth is. I just know That's that fair. that is an impressive kaiju. <laughs> That's fair. But if it had looked like a beholder, I wouldn't have gone, nah, it looks too much like a beholder. And I mean, it, it, But it is just a giant Leviathan sea creature. And it, it's he's always kind of lightly described the the gdt version is disgusting it's infected in every area of it which i you know parallels with some of the themes but it feels like we don't spend enough time in monstro to really have him twinned with anything in particular it's just it's it's important to point out if there's any instances where this one actually uh, succeeds more than the gdt one Pinot goes in, gets his dad out, uses his uh, freakish feet to turn himself into a small speedboat and race Geppetto to shore, whereupon it feels like Geppetto's dead. And then he wishes upon a star again whilst crying, and we get the tangled ending where uh, she cries one golden tear onto his cheek. And Geppetto comes back. Now... I had not been watching this the first time around going, yeah, yeah, bullshit. I'd just been like, I wonder how they're going to end this one. And I felt, and especially watching Willow's expression through this whole finale sequence, they didn't have to do this. And I feel like this ending can be read in a variety of ways. But ultimately, Geppetto says, you don't need to change for me. And you are all, you know, you are as much a, a a real boy as any real boy who ever was. And you got Joe Gordon Levitt, who actually I think did a really good job of imitating the original Jiminy Cricket and kind of embodying that kind of old timey character in a context that almost doesn't ask for it because nobody talks like that anymore, if they ever did. And I it it won me over this particular ending, which is why uh, I was 
quite so surprised that uh, so many people were furious at it. Willow read specifically a trans allegory into this, which I'm fairly certain was not the intention. And I was curious to find out what people thought about it. I asked Pluto and a couple of others on the Discord, and they came back with, uh, if you're reaching and stretching, yeah, maybe, but you know, it, it doesn't seem particularly intentional. So, yes, sure. Oh, do, do you just- want to? Because yeah, just because Willow and I did discuss this a little bit, so it, it wasn't so much that it was specifically uh, that it was a trans allegory in the story. It was more the idea of, and again, this is like it's it's almost feels like a theme, but it, but not quite enough. And as you say, I don't for one second think that this was intentional. Mm. I think this is just what we were able to piece together when we were discussing it. After Hell of that. a lot of goodwill. For Zemeckis yeah. and, and uh, uh, Hanks, um, but the the thing that that Willow picked up on was the exploration of what uh, the construction of gender and specifically the construction of masculinity and that being something that society keeps giving you very structured notes on what it should be and this kind of goes back to uh what i was saying before about pinocchio keeps getting these little outlines from people over what constitutes making him a real boy and it was sort of this particular social criteria for real boy what happens when that is set externally what can happen when you are given the freedom or when you look for the freedom to determine it for yourself and the fact that the um uh blue fairy says that being or is, yeah, i can't remember if it's the blue fairy or geppetto who says it that, that being a real boy is not about what you're made of it's it's a it's about something that you have inside and it just i i think like I said, not suggesting for a second that it was intentional, but just that constantly coming back to that real boy idea mm. and that sort of suggesting that the freedom could be there if people wanted it to set up their own version of masculinity and embrace that in whatever form it took. Yeah, I I would love a version of Pinocchio that was exploring the concept of masculinity specifically like what does it mean to be a boy and and like dealing with like toxic masculinity concepts and such like that i lynn and i ended up having a kind of a long conversation while we were watching this movie on that topic like oh they could go in this way and then they didn't and pleasure island's right there all you do is just make it sort of like what are you a man or not yeah yeah, yeah which we'll get to it but boy howdy the pleasure island in del toro's movie is a bit different um mm-hmm. But the, the the problem for me, because I, I unfortunately have to agree with um, Pluto and, and the others, because it, it's still being defined by an outside person. By like a in dude, the end, yeah. it's not Pinocchio who says, "No, I am a real boy. I am I am me, and it's fine, and I'm as real as anyone else." It is still Geppetto saying, "But." these are the three criteria for being a real boy and you match them. It's still, there's something about that, that, that didn't sit right with me given the kind of like trans read. I would never take that away from Willow and and you, obviously like I, I, you, you, you read what you, what you read into it. And I think that's incredibly valid. I just, 
I didn't for those reasons. I think it's the the fact that we latched on to that Pinocchio's a decent kid from the get-go, doesn't do anything shitty in particular because he has no arc, mm. and is rejected by the school those all sort of like played into the idea that, whoa, well, Pinocchio doesn't necessarily fit with other people's idea of what a boy should be. I wonder if they're going to go somewhere with that. And our minds were clearly leaning into that so hard that we read too much <laughs> we into the right ending. through the wall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, it would have been incredible if they had gone somewhere with that. Mm. Like, it, I would have given this movie so much credit if that's the direction that they had gone with the kind of exploration in the end like even if they it was like muddled up into that point and then they like really sat down and did that or even uh, explored um geppetto's like uh agoraphobia that is mentioned in the beginning and then never comes back really mm. like if, if they were in monstro that scene that lasts like four minutes it, it's so like blink and you miss it uh, where Pinocchio does a superhero landing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> if, if the conflict of that scene was Geppetto being like, well, maybe I don't want to leave. Like, this is a perfectly fine place. We have fish. We have other means. All of the people I love are here. And then it actually is Pinocchio saying, no, there's a big world out there. There's so much to experience. There's so much to love and understand and it was like that was a conflict between them would have been something that I think would have would have made the ending uh, more interesting just along along a similar lines as if they had explored more and like who it is like no one defines what a real boy is. I am a real boy would have been a great ending, too. And so I don't know. It just kind of goes into all the other stuff we talked about. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and one final design bit. Uh, I like the fact that when he becomes a bit partially donkified, his tail is segmented. I pointed out to uh, uh, Sharon that when he turns into a real live donkey, he's kind of a step closer to being a real live boy. At least he's organic. He might get organs. In, uh, in, ver in some versions we watched today, he actually does go full donkey. And, uh, you know, he ends up in Tijuana. It's a ripe palaver. Oh, my. Good oh. God. We did not watch that version, and I do not intend to. <laughs> anyway, uh, but the fact that he's kind of turning into a wooden donkey, uh, it makes it like, so I think, um, doesn't, what's his name? Doesn't, uh, yeah, the, the Luke Evans goes, says, oh. a wooden donkey, that's worth a fortune. And we just looked at each other and went, how? <laughs> But even in like the, the the regular book version of when he goes full donkey, he then gets drafted in the lamest circus ever. That's like, ah, oh, yes, a donkey, and it will now jump through a burning hoop. Not once, not twice, but three times. And I'm like, there has got to be better circuses than this. This sucks. And eventually, the donkey falls over on his third attempt. And this is in the the 2019 one. The ringmaster goes, right, better take it outside, turn it into a drum. And I'm like, fuck it out. <laughs> Again, this is what I mean by they go so hard on the donkey. Casual animal cruelty in this <laughs> they, they kick this donkey in off a cliff and it turns into a CGI donkey briefly. I'm like, thank God, because it feels like in Italy there might not be donkey rules regarding what you can and can't do with them. <sighs> Or in certain countries, I don't know. That sounds racist, but uh, I, I, um, what I prize is is any uh, like any scenario where an animal is definitely not being harmed. But anyway, let's talk about the Del Toro one, shall we? Oh, thank goodness! Because we talked about this one for an hour and a quarter now, <laughs> and it feels like it's going to be disproportionately uh, slanted in favour of the Disney one. 
Yeah, so. As long as our as long as our conversation isn't just yeah, it's good. You should see it. <laughs> End of podcast. Plus superlatives. It's excellent. It's very it's good. It's really good. It's might be the best version of this story I've ever seen. It's End of interesting. <laughs> oh no! I'll fetch the bit of wood. Yeah. I'll fetch oh, the yeah. Pinocchio. Pinocchio. <laughs> Chase around the garden with a puppet. Okay. And we will leave off there so we can all come back fresh for part two where we discuss, among other Pinocchio adaptations, the wonderful Guillermo del Toro incarnation and weird and creepy ones starring Jonathan Taylor Thomas, Roberto Benigni, and Paulie Shaw. Skiddy, skiddy, skiddy. A big, massive wooden thank you once again to our top tier patron backers who always get a shout out. We are carving your names into a tree as we speak. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finn Barnicole, Frankie Punzi. Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And we will finish on the wonderful Cynthia Erivo, the shining star of this film. 